Welcome to Motherhood Exposed. Join me, Zoe Cresswell, mum of two and a UK-trained midwife and doula, as I meet with an array of amazing women navigating life and motherhood. Since becoming a mum for the second time, after my own complex journey, I've become more and more aware that motherhood is so unique. There's no one story the same, and women need support now more than ever. I hope by allowing mothers to openly speak out, we can help to break the silence around many topics. We need to shout out that there is no normal, and that is something we need to embrace. Motherhood isn't always picture perfect, so let's bust some myths, realign expectations, and share the journey together. Hello, I hope you're all well, and for those of you who celebrate Christmas, are getting into the festive spirit despite this year's differences. Today, I speak to Lala Langtree-White, a pregnancy, birth and parenting support specialist who is passionate about supporting individualised care for every unique journey. I spent the evening with Lala in her beautiful, busy and bustling home, which was decorated like a page out of the Pottery Barn catalogue. Lala talks to me about her third pregnancy with her surprise twin boys. The pregnancy was complex from the start with an early diagnosis of twin-to-twin transfusion syndrome. And Lala talks me through their journey to be the two healthy boys she has tearing around her home now. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Hello, Lala. Thank you very, very, very much for fitting me in today because you've had a bonkers day. But every day with you is a bonkers day. I, I think, think every is... day is a bonkers day. <laughs> it's an absolute pleasure to end the day sitting on the sofa chatting to you. I don't anything nicer. Or luxury to be sitting in the same room as well. I know, absolutely. <laughs> and with all of our kids sleeping. Well, hopefully. Us, the six of them. Um, yeah. Hopefully. I don't know what's going on in my house, but um, that's true. He can manage them. Mr. C can manage them. So I'd like to start my podcast with the same question, um, which is how you met your lovely husband. I met my lovely husband. So we, it's only now, I think, as a, as a grown up, which I'm as turning 40 in February, I'm going to call myself a grown up officially Do you now. Feel it yet? Oh, I'm kind of waiting for it to kick in. I think the fact that I have four children, I've got a fair level of responsibility. <laughs> so I'm going to call myself a grown up well at done. this point. Congratulations. Um, thank you. I'm going to try and pull it off. Um, but um, we met when we were babies. Of course, you think you're very grown up at that age, but we met when we were 24. And I think it's only now that I've realized really how lucky we are because everything we've been through with the kids. We were so lucky to kind of grow up together and have our time beforehand and form a really strong relationship and base. So we met um, when we were both taking um, some time out doing a ski season post-university. Nice. Um, and uh, we were living in Zermatt in Switzerland, which is about as romantic as it gets. If you know the if you're intimately familiar as I am with Toblerone chocolate oh, you'll know the little um, yeah, yeah, yeah. mountain on the side of it that is the Matterhorn oh, that wow. is in Switzerland uh, in Zermatt so it is abs- it's, it is the most beautiful place in the world and if I won the lottery tomorrow be the first place I would be forking out cash for an amazing pad but sadly it is the land of chocolate and money um but it was absolutely amazing sounds like my place yeah exactly exactly um but it um yeah we were very lucky and I would say with meeting Rue that the difference was it wasn't kind of like thunderbolts and lightning it was a bit like you hadn't realized you were holding your breath and then suddenly you could breathe out and go oh okay well it just it was the other shoe dropped and that was it and we just knew um and we moved in together about three days after we met did you yeah 
Gosh. We did. I mean, again, I've got to say, when you're living in the mountains in a ski resort, you're living in a bubble. Reality a doesn't exist. Complete fairy tale. Then. Total fairy tale. Oh, I love it. Um, so we managed to make this fairy tale work, and then we moved back to the UK at the end of the season and um, lived with my mum as about as romantic as it can get from there <laughs> whilst my husband did his private pilot's licence and then we moved to Australia together six months later where he did his airline transport pilot's licence and he is now um, a pilot for Emirates or still today, <laughs> Touchwood is a pilot for Emirates. So when so, did you move to Dubai? So we moved to Dubai in two thousand and. 14. Okay, so you had so two, I had two children, children when we moved point? here. Yeah, I had a, um, what did I have? A three-year-old and a one-year-old. Wow. And before we'd been here six months, um, I had a surprise pregnancy. And that is what we're here to talk about. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so, go ahead. So, tell me about the surprise. So... Again, we were, I, you know, I think moving anywhere can be quite challenging. I think you know that it takes about a year really to settle and find friends and find your feet and all the rest at of least. it. Um, and I think at that time, I didn't know many people who had two children, let alone who were having three children, etc. Um, and I, we'd, we would have loved to expand our family, um, but we weren't looking to do so just yet. Mm -hmm. We were just trying to settle in. Um, one fairly key reason being as well that at the time our employer did not cover um, medical insurance before you'd been here six months. Wow. So and in Dubai we have to pay for everything. all of our healthcare. Absolutely. Which you truly appreciate the NHS. It really does. It really does. And the NHS are interwoven into this story and I was very lucky that I hadn't actually been out of the UK particularly long because the NHS were my saving grace in this. Um, and I haven't got enough good things to say about them. Um, but we, uh, I had an inkling that I was pregnant. You get that kind of, mm, something's going on, I think. Um, I have um, a condition called adenomyosis. So I do get fairly erratic periods mm -hmm. as well. Um, this is something that was picked up actually later, but I have had kind of slightly erratic um, periods. So it wasn't kind of, instantly identifiable and I sort of put my head in the sand a little bit and one of the people that I met early on was our lovely GP um, and I sort of called her up and I said um, I think I think I might be pregnant it's sort of a bit of a surprise it wasn't she said look it might be something else going on pop down to allied diagnostics and have a quick scan and for anybody in Dubai who knows allied diagnostics this is not your swanky OBGYN um, <laughs> office out here which we are very lucky to get it's all um, glimmer and glitter in most of the OB offices out here they yeah. are very lovely but this was a fairly kind of run-of-the-mill if you've got someone in my husband's company who had a chest infection needed a chest x-ray or somebody had you know bashed their elbow or knee that's where you'd go and get your x-ray done mm -hmm. so I was lying on the bed um, and um, uh, I had a very stony-faced uh, sonographer nice. and she was just proceeding to ask me some questions about my periods about my children um, and then she said you have twins in the family and she didn't ask another question and I said was that just a routine question and she turned the screen to me and she just went no there are two no and I that's said, how you found that's out, how I found out. No. and I just went uh, sorry what now and my husband started to do this very high pitched <laughs> giggle in the corner of the room 
And, um, and I think had I not been lying down, I would have fallen down. And I remember coming out of the room and announcing to the entire waiting room, there's two of them. Oh, it's two of them. It is. It's doing it to everybody. I was in absolute shock for Oh my god! Complete shock. That's like a movie. <laughs> it was an. It was. It was. I, I've never been so stunned in in my life, and um, and I went through a real mix of emotions because going into the scan, I had had such a dearth of really uncomfortable feelings about. I wasn't ready to be pregnant yet. Mm-hmm. I was still breastfeeding my 22-month-old at this point. No, she wasn't even that much. She was, you know, I was still breastfeeding a toddler yeah. at this point. Um, we would just moved to this country. I didn't know anyone really. And I felt completely overwhelmed. And I felt a bit kind of resentful and hoped that it kind of wasn't yet. And then when I found out that I was having twins, after the shock settled down I then felt enormous amounts of guilt that I felt that way um, and instantly felt really panicked I was going to lose this pregnancy because I'd felt that mm-hmm. you know yeah. I think I've spoke you know doing what I do now yeah. you speak to so many mums where they worry that they're going to have this self-fulfilling prophecy because they haven't been particularly you know they haven't immediately been the ribbons and bows of pregnancy and hooray mm-hmm. um, and and had kind of tentative and very va- you know varied emotions around it to begin with. So it was um, a really challenging time. And the other thing I felt that I never had with the other two, you know that moment where you find out that you're pregnant, and there's very few people who know whether you've had an assisted, you know, assistance to get to that stage in pregnancy, mm-hmm. and it's you and your um, fertility doctor, whether it's you and your husband, you've just taken a test, whether it's just you by yourself at that stage. And I. There's always that moment where you just kind of, this is your secret and yeah. no one else knows it. Mm-hmm. And it's just amazing. And I had this really weird thought that I'm the lemon in this. They knew about each other before I knew about them. Am I going to be mummy to them? Am I going to be mummy in the same way that I am to my other two children? Am yes. I going to matter? Just so many, this kind of train of thought that just ran away with me. And I had so much anxiety at that stage. And I had huge amounts of anxiety as soon as I went down the Google rabbit hole about the increased chance of miscarriage around. So, did you find pregnancy. out straight away what type of? So I didn't. I didn't even think to ask at that stage. I knew nothing about them. Whereas no, now it's like my first yeah, question yeah, yeah, to anyone. Um, and I didn't even think to ask. Neither did they tell me. Um, and it was only when I called. I had the obstetrician who cared for me when I had my first son had coincidentally moved to Abu Dhabi and was down at the Corniche. Yeah. So I called her up and said, oh my goodness, I'm pregnant. It's twins. And she straight away said, what type of twins are they? (laughs) Go and call them back and find out what type of twins they are. Because again, I think unless you are a medical professional or walk this journey, you don't really know that there is a significant difference Mm -hmm. in the type of twins. Yeah. And you wouldn't know to ask. And you wouldn't know to ask. And what implications that might have for your pregnancy and for your antenatal care. Um, so I called back and I found out that they were, in fact, monochorionic, meaning that they share a placenta, and diamniotic. So they had their own amniotic sacs, but they shared a placenta. And um, what this means is that they are monozygotic eggs. So they've been created from one egg that has split. And in a nutshell... If your egg splits nice and efficiently, and let's call it day one to three, you'd end up with two placentas and two amniotic sacs. 
about day three to six with the splitting you'd end up with one placenta and two amniotic sacs which is what I had mm -hmm. and beyond that you're looking at monochorionic monoamniotic so one placenta one amniotic sac and way beyond that you'd be looking at conjoined twins and so um, as you go further on monoamniotic mon monochorionic monoamniotic it tends to be rarer because it is a pregnancy that can quite easily cause complications yeah. within itself by the um, embryos being able to kind of effectively tie themselves in knots and sort of um, uh, spontaneously in the pregnancy, which is um, a real worry. And you have really close monitoring for that. For ours, we needed to have specialist monitoring. So straight away, we did some asking around. Um, and I had spoken to the obstetrician who was down in Abu Dhabi and um, she'd recommended a couple of names up here and had said that she'd be really happy, but she wanted me to have someone on the doorstep in Dubai as well. Yeah, of course. Um, and so that is where I found one of our great obstetricians out here. And I'm not sure if we're talking about people or not. I don't yeah, want to kind of like name names or anything. <laughs> I have nothing negative to say about anybody. <laughs> I was so grateful for all the care I got. Um, but what was interesting is I went to that first appointment and I remember saying, I'm so, you know, I felt huge amounts of guilt that I was felt very unprepared for this pregnancy. And now I feel it's so incredibly special and I am terrified about losing these babies. And I remember him saying to me something that kind of haunts me to this day. It's him saying, you know, a miscarriage isn't the worst thing that can happen in this pregnancy, which given the work I do now, and it gives me chills just saying it now straight through my body. Mm -hmm. And as somebody who's been through miscarriage, I think that's very thin ice to skate on mm. in offering that opinion. Um, and I would never, ever attest to that. But what it lay a kind of path for is what other complications can potentially arise and how I think what he was trying to allude to um, is that, um, you know, the first trimester isn't necessarily the only thing you need to be concerned yeah. about. Um, and he started to tell me about things like twin to twin transfusion syndrome, where the babies don't share that blood flow across the placenta evenly. Um, but it only happens in 10 to 15% of um, identical twin pregnancies, of monochorionic pregnancies. So I thought, well, you know, it's not going to happen to us. <laughs> and I went home and just contended with hyperemesis gravidarum, which hit like a freight train. No. Um, yeah. And I remember my poor little toddler at the time just watching Frozen on a loop downstairs as I was kind of lying on the bathroom floor upstairs. Oh, and no. even now, just the sound of like the song Let It Go, when literally that was all I could physically <laughs> do at the time, it still haunts me to this day. Did you have any help? Um, I was on Zofran. No, um, I meant any oh, oh, physical help. Was there anybody in the house to help you? I had an incredible nanny that we had just hired at the time who I think had no idea when she agreed to join our family that two little, two more little people were <laughs> soon going to enter this mix and we were going to end up with four under four. But she... Four under four? Yeah. Oh or gosh. I should say four, four and under because my little one was... My eldest was just four when they were born as well. Wow. Um, so... It was a pretty um, intense time um, and that nausea and that vomiting all day long was just really just so extreme and so intense. And how long did that last for? For me that lasted, well, it slightly got usurped uh -huh. when the twin to twin came along. Um, so 
because it was so bad, my husband was rostered to work on Christmas Day. So I thought, okay, I'm going to go back to the UK for Christmas. Yeah. I'm going to go and be at my wonderful parents-in-law who are so so involved with our family and bringing into helping out and are really close to my kids. So I knew that they'd be able to kind of field my younger two. Um, and I would still be able to just pretty much lie in bed and exist as best as possible. How did you do that flight? Um, not easily. I have to say it was pretty, yeah, I, I, I think I probably blacked it out, but it was really, really challenging. Wow. Um, and, and I think, you know, for anybody who has taken something as offer and in, in pregnancy, it kind of works to a certain extent. But if, the, if, if you've got a bad day, there's nothing that's no. going to, to help. Um, and we have a kind of two hour car journey the other side. And actually, I'm worse on the car than I am in the plane. Um, so it's a bit difficult. And actually, I'm I always in pregnancy. I find that the morning isn't as bad. It's as the day goes on. I get much I get much worse. Oh, so the evenings are really bad for me. So you're like the opposite. I am the opposite. Mm. Absolutely. There's nothing morning about. Well, it was pretty much 24-7, <laughs> but it was worse in the evening. Um, and and for anybody who's going through that, I just, my heart goes out to you because it is really challenging to contend to, um, contend with. And when you're looking after other children as well and trying to be kind of mummy and everything, mm. it was really difficult. And we live in a part of the world that is heavily scented in every mall that you go to you have food and perfumes being offered to you and I found that was really really challenging oh love um I think now thank god we've got the advent of um home delivery for shopping and supermarkets and things like that which I would have definitely benefited at the time so we went home for Christmas and um whilst I was there I needed to have my 12 week scan so I went to go and have that at our local hospital and they just sort of said fairly casually look we can't get all the measurements that we need could you come back in a week's time Mm -hmm. and I didn't really think too much of it I thought well you know, I'm here, I'm going to delay my flight and we'll stay for a bit longer. Mm-hmm. And I went back and the head of the um, OBGYN department um, was there. And I thought, oh, okay, all right. Well, maybe, you know, I know that we're having, you know, complicated twins or mm-hmm. somewhat more complicated twins. Um, anyway, so we went in and I brought my son with me, my three-year-old at this point, thinking it'd be a really bonding experience for him oh. to come and see these two little babies. And it happened to be the appointment where they then break the news that we were stage two with twin to twin transfusion syndrome. And it's got a Quintero system. So um, you've got five stages of it um, and each one gets uh, gradually more severe and stage five being um, the loss of one or both babies. Um, So we were stage two at this stage. So I was 13 weeks um, and it was explained to me um, that it wasn't looking great. Um, that really to be viable for the laser surgery to try and correct this imbalance by cauterizing the blood vessels to, to try and give them an even share of the placenta. This is such a, a medical lesson to everybody. <laughs> I know if you haven't been through this, this is the world that I live and am so fascinated by now, but um, I do appreciate that there'll be people going, this is just bonkers yeah. stuff, <laughs> absolutely bonkers. Um, and, um, uh, and so... Um, they basically explained that really to be viable for that, you needed to be 17 weeks because you need to have the um, kind of the lining of the uterus. It, it needs to, you need to have it, the amnion, the chorion fuse the lining of the uterus to have that kind of stability to be mm-hmm. able to do it. Um, I knew of one doctor who'd performed it at 15 weeks 
And I was very fortunate in that my son's godmother's best friends helped run his charitable foundation. Wow. So (laughs) with a few phone calls, news reached him of what was going on. And I got a phone call from um, Professor Kipros Nicolaides, who, if you've ever watched anything about in utero surgery, he is about the closest thing to walking God on this planet. He's phenomenal. And he just said, hi, my name's um, Kipros, um, and I've heard about you, um, and I know you're great friends with so-and-so, and and I would really like to take your case. Can you be in London tomorrow? Oh, my um, gosh. In my office. Really? And I was like, absolutely. I'm there. (laughs) I am there. And meeting him was honestly one of the most amazing things ever I from the moment I walked in to meet him I felt I have now there was a slight surrendering to the fact that I felt I've I am giving my babies the best possible chance I can do right now Mm -hmm. I have put their I am entrusting their well-being to the best person and if anyone's going to help us get through it it's it's him and I don't doubt there are some fabulous people out here um, that I haven't come across and that weren't the people who treated me. There are some amazing people. And I know that, you know, I was meant to be referred to another amazing doctor in London. And we are so lucky that we have these, but they are few and far between. The people, the fetal medicine consultants who know how to do this surgery are fairly spread out amongst Mm. the world there aren't that many of them and it's a fairly new procedure as well it's not lost on me that had i had the boys 30 years ago there's very little chance that they would be here with me now so we went and met with kipros and he said um are you still on your is rupert still in dubai or is he with you now no he wasn't there for any of this um so I was giving him the updates. Yeah, so that was the other thing, of course. So I'd taken my son to that appointment. I was trying to kind of keep it together, um, you know, and try and explain to him that it's okay. They were just explaining to mommy that the babies aren't sharing very well, but it's not their fault. They can't do anything about it. Um, And I remember taking them out for a little baby Chino in um, Costa Coffee um, the day after and just starting to cry and really trying to, you know, when you're trying to hold it together in front of your children, because, you know, lest they see that we have emotions too, and you're trying to be strong for everyone. And I remember a woman coming up and slipping me a note and just saying, I lost a baby this, it said, I had lost a baby this year and I can see you're going through something. And if I can help and things like that to this day, the kindness of strangers means just so So much. Honestly, it was amazing. So, yeah, so we kind of bumbled on through regular appointments with them, with the team over the next couple of weeks. And on the day of 17 weeks, we had laser surgery with Kipros. So you you stayed in the UK? Stayed in the UK. At this point, that was where we stayed. Um, We knew that the basket, it wasn't even available here in the region. There was no choice to come back at the time. Um, It is now available at the Corniche under Leanne Bricker, who is just phenomenal down the road um, and was a part of my journey later on. But with... um, uh, we we had the surgery, which I think is one of the most surreal things I'll ever experience. Um, going into that, you know, you are told the statistics that there's a 30% chance that one baby will survive it, a 30% chance that two babies will survive it, and a 30% chance you'll lose both babies. So you're going in feeling that the odds are pretty... And if you didn't have it? 90% chance that you'll lose both babies. Wow. Yeah. So you're going in with some fairly... Um, challenging statistics and I remember starting to cry 
And one of the doctors, one of the many people who were helping him saying, why are you crying? And I thought, uh, what a question to ask. <laughs> like, how many reasons would you like right now? I just thought it was extraordinary. But Kipros was phenomenal through the whole thing. Um, and he was absolutely amazing. And he was so focused. Um, and he's got a very dry wit, um, which helped for me break the ice and the tension. And it was literally like feeling like you had microwave, a bag of microwave popcorn in your stomach. Really? Yeah, and it's audible. You can hear it too. You can oh. hear the vessels pop like popcorn. That. It was extraordinary and you're in a small room although he's now opened up his big Harris birth rate center so I think if you go to have this surgery now it's much swankier um and it was really surreal so we were in this very small room and there were about 10 people who traveled from all over the world to watch this and observe really yeah and I remember so Kipros makes jokes whilst you're doing it I think because not not intentional jokes but um I seem to remember the machine that he used had almost like a foot pedal on the floor for the laser uh-huh. a bit like a sewing machine and then you've got a fetoscope going in so it's a bit like a any it's a bit like a big kebab skewer that goes in through your tummy um and you're awake for it the babies are awake for it. Um, it is incredibly surreal so which is why it's quite so risky because the babies are awake and moving around and um he says just hold my hand squeeze my hand we're going to do it together and then as he's doing it and the babies are moving around and you see them you are watching this happen could you see it happen absolutely on this big screen and i wish i'd taken a video of it i wish i had i wish i'd had it on tape not Um, really the thing you're thinking about at that point no it it wasn't i think i was just i just wanted to make sure that all um all three of us came out of that room um and 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 you're also aware that the longest reported death after it is is six weeks later. So it isn't something that, you know, okay, this is a fix, it's done, it was successful, that's great. You had to kind of wait and see how it went because you really need to see how the babies continue to grow from there because one of the characteristics of it is one will have lots of fluid around them and one will have no fluid around. So one of mine looked like it was wrapped in cling film. He had absolutely no, which is called oligohydramnius. And one had loads of fluid called polyhydramnius because effectively one had too much blood flow. So he was peeing like crazy and mm-hmm. um, his heart was starting to go into, he was starting to go into heart failure. By this point, we were stage three, four TTS. So it was, it needed to be done on that day. There yeah. was no um, waiting around. Um, and then my other one, you couldn't see any um, bladder um, and kidneys. You could, he just, you know, things just weren't functioning in the way. Do you know now which was which? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, all the time. And it actually, from that surgery, when they um, did it, they um, severed the membrane that was in between the babies and it didn't go completely or evenly. So actually after it, we continued to have oligohydramnius and polyhydramnius go between the babies. Um, uh, not to a too severe a level, but to a level that continued to be... A concern and, and need monitoring, um, and actually that amniotic, the the membrane wrapped around the umbilical cord of one of the twins, and we had amniotic bands, which means that the blood flow is then cut off to the extremities. So he actually lost three toes after it as well. Which all things considered, I think will just serve him brilliantly for a great story when he's trying to, you know, woo I didn't know a that. suitor. <laughs> Yeah. Wow. I know. I, I'm not entirely sure how we managed to stumble through getting these boys safely into this world, but with all the things, all the hurdles that were thrown at them, but no but they did. Um, so when I when I had the babies, um, I remember Dr. Bricker showing me the placenta and showing me the umbilical cord with the um, membranes wrapped around it. So he was incredibly lucky that he only lost three toes. 
Um, <laughs> I'm a bit speechless because this story is unreal. It is a bit unreal. Even when I see it now, um, I, I just can't quite believe it. Um, and I think it's probably one of the reasons that you know, we were talking earlier about my my two little co-sleepers every night. Yeah. And I do lie there and just think, I'm just so blooming lucky that you are here. And it is luck. It is luck that they are here. It is... You know, I never, ever, ever say things happen for a reason because, you know, you and I support so many people who mm. go through shocking things that sh there's no reason that's good enough mm -hmm. that justifies it. Mm -hmm. But I do wonder if they came into this world to set me on a path. I mean, I couldn't imagine doing anything differently to what I do now in supporting other families. Um, and none of that would have ever happened without what I went through with them. I don't think. No, so, no, um, I don't think because nothing can set you up to be able to know how to support somebody else, I don't think, if you haven't done it no. to some degree yourself. I um, think so. I think, of course, you know, I think it goes without saying you and I both know midwives, doulas, etc., who don't have children of their own, who are brilliant at what they do. But I think when you've been through an experience, whether that's, you know, a joyous and uncomplicated pregnancy and birth, or whether you've walked a path that has kind of literally been littered with hurdles along the way, mm -hmm it brings another level of empathy and depth to the work that, and the support that you provide, I think mm. is fair to say. Um, and it's, and, and, and also being mindful that, you know, our support of others is not about our own story, but I think you've got a level of empathy and compassion when you've walked through something that is fairly similar. I always say that, you know, we haven't walked the same paths, but we've all kind of been in the same woods together. Um, and it is, you know, when you go through something like that, where, you know, I remember coming back. So we had the, had the surgery. Um, and as I was saying, Kip Ross was making jokes. And I remember him with the laser waving it around, oh, well, not waving it around. He was probably doing something incredibly specific with it and saying, what's the matter with you, you little bastard? Do you want to be circumcised in utero? No. And myself and my husband thinking, ha, ah, because it kind of broke the ice for us. <laughs> but I remember one of the guys in the back who was observing, cracking a joke in response. And I was like, no, 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 no. Yeah, you can't do this that. This medical god right now who's got my children's lives in his hands he can say what he's like. You, you can shut up. I don't know why I thought you were going to say that he'd say it was going to say something about when he was circumcised. <laughs> no, that would he be was inappropriate. Literally, you know, waving a laser fairly close to some intimate parts of their anatomy. Wow. Um, so it was, um, yeah, it was a, it was an, a surreal experience. And afterwards, my body just shut down. I just absolutely went into that kind of. I needed to have basically my husband and Kipros carry me to what was the day room at King's College Hospital in London at the time. So you each got assigned a little day room. And mm -hmm. when I say day room, this had three hard wooden chairs on it, oh, no, no windows. And um, But basically, they, he got all the medical staff and he got all their coats. This was oh, in, in um, this was January 15th. Um, 2015 and he lay all their coats down and made this bed for me on the floor and I lay down and slept for three hours like I was drugged I was just my body just went into that shutdown wow. mode of just needing to and I absolutely slept so solidly and then woke up ready to have the scan to find out whether the babies had survived the initial part of the surgery which thankfully they had um, and so that was our first hurdle. Then I needed to go home and rest and wait and go back again a week later and see 
whether they were still there. And this is a stage at pregnancy at 17 weeks where you really can't feel what's going on. Um, you might think you've got flutterings. Again, my pregnancy was my third and fourth, so I kind of felt the move a little bit earlier, but even then you're doubting yourself all the time. Um, and you're thinking, what should, what do I do? How can I help these babies? And you really just have to care for yourself in the best way you can. And the day after the surgery was my daughter's second birthday. Um, and bless her heart. And the time, all she wanted to do, she was obsessed by Paddington. The Paddington movie had just come out. So <laughs> my husband took her to Paddington Station for breakfast oh, <laughs> whilst I stayed in bed. Um, and we had weekly scans with Kipros. Um, and he said, you know, I think you should stay in the UK and give mm -hmm. birth here mm -hmm. um, uh, with another professor called Professor Tao and be there. But my husband didn't get any time off. Um, we don't have a whole lot, as you know, of compassionate leave out here. Um, and I didn't really know how I would juggle finding somewhere to live in London yeah. with two other children yeah. and how I would make that work. So at 22 weeks, things had been stable and looked really complicated. uncomplicated. Everything looked great. So we thought, okay, let's go back to Dubai. So we got back to Dubai and my first appointment... <laughs> day after we arrived um was he wanted to redo the 20 week growth scan at this point yeah big scan and straight away he said i'm really sorry it's not good news um the babies have got a fluid imbalance again turned and looked at me he said look i'm not sure what i'm seeing but it's not looking great it looks like we've now got either reverse or repeat ttts so reverse meaning that now the donor is now the recipient and vice versa or it's happening all over again. Oh, no. He said, I'm not really sure what I'm seeing, which I was really grateful that he kind of took outside counsel because, um, again, in, in Dubai, it's not something I think that everyone's no. known for. No, it's, it's, it's the setup is very different. It's a very independent yeah. um, process out here. So he got in touch with Professor Nicolaides and I spoke to Professor Nicolaides and said, this is what's happening. Um, and he said, no, I'm sure that's not the case. Um, but what I'd like to do, I'm actually coming out to talk at a conference in Abu Dhabi. No. Can I please see you? It's like the stars aligned. <laughs> Honestly, I'm, I'm pretty certain without these incredible people, um, one and all, uh, I, I don't know where we would be. Um, I, but honestly, uh, it, it was it was amazing. So... In this time, I spoke to my obstetrician, uh, Maggie, who cared for me when I had Wilbur, mm -hmm. my eldest, who was his own complicated little monkey, <laughs> which is a whole other story. Another um, podcast. Absolutely. <laughs> and, um, and she said, look, you know this isn't good news, don't you? You know that this is kind of, you need to kind of prepare yourself, don't you? And I think, you know, as you know better than anyone, it's just not something you can do as a mum no and and around this time and I remember lots of people trying to give all the comments that they think are really helpful or trying to go I remember people saying um you know very close to me people saying you know you might just have to be okay coming home with one baby and me sort of thinking right, well look at your children now and decide which one of them you'd have been yeah. okay to be without and thinking I, I don't feel I'm being greedy by wanting both of the babies I'm carrying to survive <laughs> You know, I am acutely aware that there are people who are struggling to have one baby and I've been blessed with two, but equally, mm -hmm. I can't just say, well, it's okay if I just yeah, come home with no. one. It, the, the, you can't rationalize any of this. It was just 
all-consuming and, and it was a it was I don't a really think you have to time. rationalize that I don't no. think I don't think you are being clean. well I don't think there is anything you can you know the, the, the love that you have for your children from the moment that you even contemplate having them um, and the dreams that you have for them and the hopes and the aspirations that you have for those pregnancies that birth that experience go far beyond the sum of the weeks that you are pregnant mm-hmm. or how long you've been trying to it's just it, it isn't something that you can um rationalize or kind of put no, in it's not something you it's, can control it's, no it's just absolutely so it was a really challenging time and um so she said look but you might as well come down and meet i've just recruited an amazing fetal medicine consultant dr leanne bricker who's come over from um liverpool women and children's hospital I, you know she's the best of the best come down and, and see her and again the second that we walked into her office and met leanne i just thought we're back in, You're in safe I, hands. I know that being in this room now, I have put my baby's, I've put my baby's trust in the best person I can possibly do. And she knew um, Professor Nicolides very well, obviously. Um, and, and she was just fantastic. And the hospital was definitely not the um, kind of flashy hospitals that we are kind of used to out here. Mm-hmm. Um, it was quite a sort of challenging hospital in in many respects um, and at the time it wasn't open to the expat community unless you had a very complicated pregnancy so it was culturally very very different as well from what we had been used to yeah. um, so uh, it was it was wonderful seeing her and um, and she was actually hosting the conference that Kip Ross was speaking at. So therefore, <laughs> all kind of the stars really did align. Um, and so she kind of had a look and she said, I think what's happening is that the membrane between is going. I think that's what's going on. But um, Kip Ross is coming and you can use my room and he can come and see you and have a consultation with you here. Gosh. So that is what we did another week later when he came out and Again, a bit like being in the room with Kip Ross and everyone being there to worship at the feet of this amazing God. Once again, he was followed by hordes of people through the hospital. And I remember them sort of, you know, the the, the women in his presence sort of saying to me, you know, lie down, lie down, he's coming. And me saying, this is my appointment with my doctor. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know? and, and he was very good because he doesn't kind of play up to that at all he's the most humble man you've ever met he's just he's just lovely and um and he kind of had a good look around and he said yeah I can you know it's the membrane I think when I did the surgery we ruptured that membrane between the two so they're now in one sack which comes with its own set of then complications of just making sure that they were both okay yeah and that kind of wasn't it hadn't gone fully so that's why we were getting the fluid imbalance I see um and uh, and that continued to go so it was quite amazing it was very surreal by the end of the pregnancy you could literally see the two of them kind of like jabbing at each other in the uterus and um having these sort of slow motion in it, you know a bit like having a, a, a fist fight underwater yeah it was, it, was, it was so bizarre to watch on screen um and so we knew at that point that we had to make a choice about whether we went back to the uk or not and actually at 31 weeks this was taken out of my hands because I lost my mucus plug and um, the uh, doctor was like, right, okay, let's do steroids. I admitted for that uh, in the high dependency overnight, check me, check the babies. Nothing happened. Everything settled down again. And then I managed to, so we had a decision, right, we're here and we're with Leanne and we felt very confident 
being in her care. And obviously because I had Maggie, who'd also been there Mm -hmm. and supported the birth of my first son. So I had these two incredible women. Um, So were you commuting to Abu Dhabi all the time? Yeah, about uh, every three days or so. Wow. we go between that once a week and then towards the end it'd and be a bit closer. Did you have a setup if there was an emergency in Dubai? Um, I would have called the doctor that we were seeing here. Um, but again, we were kind of, you know, putting a, a leap of faith out there and wow, yeah. um, uh, uh, manifesting that all would be well <laughs> and that we'd get there. And actually, when I got to 33 weeks, my water started to go with a trickle. Um, and I remember my husband was flying back from Australia and I thought, I'm just gonna just, just <laughs> ignore this for a moment. And literally he landed off a flight from Australia and I said, I know that you've just been flying for hours straight, but we're gonna have to go to the hospital. Um, I think my waters are going. So we jumped in the car, drove down to Abu Dhabi, had the amnio swab, which for anyone who doesn't know, it's like a little swab that's placed inside the vagina to check whether it's amniotic fluid. I would say, from my experience as a doula now and personal experience, it's not the most reliable of um, swabs. Mm -hmm. And I think at this point, because I was clearly leaking something and it wasn't urine, um, they were like, okay, all right, even though this is said negative, um, I think we want to keep you in and and we were going to admit you and see if any um, contractions happen. Um, And at this point, I was... Then my fetal medicine consultant, I said, I think, you know, we need to, these babies need to be born now. And I was 33 plus five at this point. Um, and I thought, you know, we're at a great stage as well. And I remember my obstetrician saying, yep, yeah, let's go now. And the fetal medicine consultant saying, no, I want to see if we can buy another day or two. Um, which I really appreciated that kind of advocacy and that discussion between the two of them as well for the babies, because I really do know now, particularly doing mm-hmm. what I do, how important each day is at that point. Yeah. Did they, were you involved in that conversation? Yeah, I think I was. I think, obviously, had I known then what I know now, <laughs> I think I would have felt able to have a bigger role in that. Um, but um, this is something, obviously, I'm really passionate about women seeing now. I think we're so used to looking at our medical care in terms of that inverted pyramid model where we're looking with a tiny point on an inverted pyramid looking up at all these people who know more than we do. And actually, I'd rather that we all saw it as a circle and you as the birthing person are at the center of that. And everyone that you put in place around you is someone to draw knowledge and support on, whether that's medical expertise, whether that's emotional support, whatever it might be, um, and that your voice and your co-decision making is truly important in all of that. Um, it really counts for a lot because no one has the intuition that a mum has. Mm. You know, uh, you and I both know that mother's instincts about anything being not quite right with her baby or her pregnancy mm-hmm. is absolutely to be listened to. Um, or and her it, son's arm, as I've just been telling you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but you know what? I think it's safe to say that it's never, ever a waste of anyone's time to go and get checked. If ever you feel that you need to go and get checked, morning, noon or night, go in, go and get checked that your babies are okay. And at this point, I think one of the things I found tricky as well with a twin pregnancy is it was very hard to be fully aware of monitoring fetal movements um, and knowing which one was which course, and kind of yeah, what was yeah. going on. So I sometimes, you know, in the way that you kind of go about your day when you're pregnant with one baby, 
and you think, okay, I'm not unsure what I'm feeling, but I've been feeling things going on. Whereas with this, I think I would get to the end of the day and think, well, I know I've been feeling something, but I've been running after a one-year-old and a three-year-old, and I am not entirely sure what I was feeling, but mm-hmm. I was feeling something. So whether it was you or you, or you know, it was it was a bit difficult, and I started to doubt whether I'd had reduced fetal movement at this point. And also because we'd had twin to twin transfusion syndrome, we were at a greater and increased risk of having um, twin anemia polycythemia sequence, TAPS, which is another complication that you can get of a monochorionic Again, we're recording a podcast. I should say this is really late at night. Yes, (laughs) you've had a very busy day. It is. You're doing amazing. Um, But a monochorionic—it's another complication you can get in monochorionic pregnancies. Um, And again, it's why it's so important if you are having a monochorionic pregnancy that you do have really skilled practitioners looking after you who know what scans need to take place, when they need to take place, um, what Dopplers need to be done, and how and when those should be done, Mm -hmm. Um, because. it, it is a level um, of care that is outside of perhaps the bands of, of a kind of normal, normal of, yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, and again, the ch- just because you have an increased chance of complications doesn't mean you will have them. I think my story is perhaps exceptionally complicated for a monochorionic pregnancy, and I've had the absolute pleasure of supporting many truly beautiful and uncomplicated monochorionic pregnancies um, that have resulted in beautiful, um, elective and spontaneous births, even up right up to 36, 37 weeks, which is um, the recommendation, you know, 36 weeks. Do you find when you are supporting women with the similar, um, yeah, uh, with monochorionic births that do you get nervous around points that things started to go wrong for you, for them? Does that make sense? No, I, you know what? I don't get nervous. I get really frustrated if there is a doctor who says, oh, everything's looking great. I'll see you in a month. Between the key weeks of 16 and um, 28 weeks, particularly, but mm-hmm. you know, even further on, I can't remember off the top of my head at this point in the day what the key weeks are because it was readjusted last year. The NICE guidelines, um, for those who don't know them, that's the National Institute for Clinical Excellence, the gold <laughs> standard of um, evidence based um, guidelines to follow, were updated last year for twin pregnancies. Okay. Um, and actually, Leanne Bricker, who I have mentioned and spoken very highly of, is one of the people who helped contribute to those guidelines so she really does write the book on it Um, and so I get very frustrated when I hear of people who've been told by their doctor come back in a month everything looks great because if I'd come back in a month then I potentially wouldn't have the boys that I have now because there's a reason why with a monochorionic pregnancy you need to be seen every two weeks whereas if you were having a dichorionic so your twins had their own placentas Mm -hmm. you would be fine to be seen in four weeks time Mm -hmm. so it's really important that your practitioner and you as a parent taking an active involvement in your pregnancy and your care know what your antenatal care should look like Um, so I think that is something that just it's only when I feel like people who are in a position that is naturally I think seen as authoritative, whether it is or not, you know, seen as people who are um, very experienced and and expert in this care are perhaps being cavalier with something that for me is quite triggering, knowing that actually there's a reason why those guidelines are there. Um, And another one of my bugbears is the fact that the myth is still perpetuated that if you are carrying twins that have their own placentas, so dichorionic, 
and are same sex, they still must be fraternal. If you've got two placentas, they're fraternal. So fraternal being two eggs rather than one. Because as I said before, if that splitting happens quite efficiently and effectively in the mm-hmm. first day, you'll end up with two placentas and two amniotic sacs. And I've supported three separate families who found out subsequently that their twins were in fact monozygotic, identical twins. Wow. Um, And it just makes a bit of a difference because again, I think some of the families have then thought, hang on a second, if our doctor didn't know that, what else maybe they didn't know? And thank goodness our babies are here, but what could have happened? Mm -hmm. And also because you have an idea about what your babies are and, and knowing them and then to find out that there's something else mm-hmm. is again it, I think it just um, and there is a, um, a, a strongly held belief by um, one of the mo- multiple birth organizations that it should be the human right of every um, uh, twin to be able to know their zygosity um, and at no expense to them it's just something that they a right that they should have to know um, so yeah so then we had the babies were born at um uh, <laughs> so you know, back way to, back <laughs> i know i'm aware that we this podcast could last for hours you could be on this for days folks so i hope you've made yourself cozy <laughs> um and so we ended up um having the babies uh by emergency cesarean the, the next morning and um it was amazing because I had both Maggie, who'd been there for the birth of Aww, my first son, yeah. and Leanne in with me. That's awesome. Um, so that was amazing. And that was when, so I was adamant that my husband follow the babies to NICU. And I was so surprised as well because mine had ha- obviously had the steroids at 31 weeks um, when I'd first been admitted um, after losing the mucus plug. And one of them came out with a squawk and one of them came out not squawking and needing help with his breathing mm-hmm. and I was thinking uh hold on a second we had steroids and you're yep. 33 weeks everything in my head told me that they would just be miniature versions of perfectly healthy babies at this point so I was really really taken aback that he needed to have breathing support at that point um and I think having now doing the work that I do now where I do a lot for people who are having special circumstances and with that a lot of people who give birth preterm I've been amazed at the variation mm-hmm. in well-being and yeah. that ultimately if you are born before 37 weeks you are considered a preterm yes. baby yes. Um, and in fact even seeing babies who are 37 weeks who sometimes struggle a little bit particularly if they've had a cesarean mm-hmm. birth and um, may need a little bit of help to begin with so um, it is really um, individual and I am very mindful of never belittling anyone's experience um, within um, Small and Mighty Babies, one of the voluntary organizations that I help uh, run, um, we often get people who've given birth at 36 weeks and their baby spent three or four days in NICU. And for them, it was the worst three or four days of their life, the most intense they'll ever go through. And what I always find so humbling is that you've got the people who gave birth at 24 weeks and spent months in NICU who kind of be some of the first to say, it's really frightening and we're here for you. And 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 I think that's really amazing that's is that everyone, amazing, yeah. you know, People aren't saying, you know, are you kidding me? No, it's like what we were talking about earlier. It's not a competition. It absolutely Um, isn't. Absolutely, Um, it really is. Is so important. I my on my gravestone will be written. It's about the connections, not the comparisons. That is my absolute. I live and die by that line because it truly is. It's about the things that connect us in humanity, not the things that because you can look to your left and your right, and someone will always perceiving me have it worse or better than you do Um, and the same in NICU or um, in going through um, 
you know, a facility, fertility assisted journey yeah. or, you know, in through loss, it, it isn't about the, the, the comparisons and the competition. It's about what connects us. And, um, and that is truly where support um, shines through. So we had these little babies and even, <laughs> I keep going back to this, and um, even though I thought I was a bit prepared for NICU, it absolutely pulled the rug from under my feet. I found that the most intense thing I have Did ever done. Did you get any um, counselling uh, prior to having them about what the NICU? No, I was taken up to like. go and see the NICU. Uh, at the Corniche, it's a very big unit. Um, you've got two um, special care rooms and you've got three NICU rooms. Um, and it's a 60 bed unit that tends to run at about 80. I mean, it is a big, wow. big, big unit. Um, and ours were in two separate rooms within the NICU, which again, I think obviously now as a parent and working as kind of a bit of a parent advocate, I would say for a twin family, that is really, really challenging. Is when, it because they needed different levels of care or is it just because where the beds were available? No, I think it was more about where the beds were available. Oh. And I think it is also, again, a bit difficult when you are running a unit as busy as that, perhaps to be able to have the ability to be quite as individually compassionate as you might need to be yeah. for the individual stories that are going on within that NICU unit. Um, but I found that very, very hard. Um, of course, because you're not only having to leave your children at home, yeah. but you're also having to split your time in the place where you are. Absolutely. And I felt for women who end up having to have their babies taken to a different hospital entirely, I just can't even imagine that. Um, you know. And so, yes, I felt very much... Um, I felt very guilty every time I was sat expressing next to one baby um, that I should have been beside the other. Um, and because, again, they had two different nursing teams, so one needed to be fed every two hours, one every three hours, which meant I fed every single hour and every fourth hour I got a break to run downstairs, or run, hobble <laughs> after my cesarean, hobble back down to my room, wash, eat, and um, get back upstairs ready to pump again. Um, and I remember about a week in thinking, turning to my husband and saying, I, I don't care what mountain I climb after this, what marathon I run, what I do, nothing ever, ever will be as physically grueling as this week has been. And um, and I was just emotionally slaughtered during that You were week. doing that whilst recovering from a major operation. Absolutely. And within this hospital, and I know also within so many hospitals in the world, over one of the things I really struggled with was I was in a shared room, always with a woman who was either in labor or who just had her baby with everyone celebrating. And I found that really challenging. And I do appreciate that, you know, within the NHS, we've got, you know, space issues as we did down there at the Corniche. But I found not having your babies and your babies, you know, I hadn't held them at this point because they were still on quite a lot of breathing support for the first few days. And I was trying to, you know, pump um, and for these babies. And it was, it was an incredibly taxing time. Um, and I would have kind of given anything for a private room at that time. And I think that's the thing is I didn't want to be in my room either. I wanted to be with the babies um, and I couldn't get any rest when I was back in my room because there was always so much going oh on in there. Gosh. Did you sleep for that first? No, I didn't. And I think it made me slightly um, bonkers at that point. I would think so. But about, <laughs> yeah, about a week in, the babies were off um, any form of ventilation. They were on nasal cannula oxygen at this point. 
and so we were able to transfer them back up to Dubai to a hospital closer to where we live. Um, so for anyone who's not familiar with the UAE, it was about an hour and a half away, um, which you know doesn't seem a huge amount in the grand scheme of things. But when you've left your toddler, your two little ones at home, and your husband's not there, it was um, it was fairly intense. That's yeah, life changing. Um, absolutely. Really. And we used to have a lady come round at eleven p.m. and shine flashlights under your bed to check that you weren't hiding any men in there. <laughs> Um, and um, and so that made a massive difference. I then had my own room. Um, I chose to stay in hospital with the babies, which for out here was a really uh, foreign concept. Not many people do. Um, but I was adamant that I wanted to breastfeed them and establish breastfeeding. I think there was a huge part of it that I'd done that for my other two. Um, and it was just what I wanted to do. But also not being able to have the pregnancy or feel so responsible for not growing them mm -hmm. to the best of my ability you know which I know wasn't rational and I totally understand um, you know when I'm talking to other mums now about the compassion you need to show for yourself and knowing that you are doing your best in circumstances that are beyond your control um, but it was a really uh, it was a really challenging time and I really did feel that I wanted to, to um, breastfeed them which was really really challenging because at 33 weeks they were still very very tiny so they were born um, about 1.8 and 2 kilos and they dropped down then to about 1.5 1.6 kilos they dropped quite a bit um, and then um, took a while to come back up um, and because my husband only got three weeks off and my mother-in-law needed to go back to the UK um, I ended up taking them home a bit early so I took them home at 1.7 kilos which in hindsight they were quite little to take home at that point <laughs> in an ICU you they feel like champs because there's always someone who's diddier than they are uh, but when I got home I do remember a friend coming to visit me like they they are still guinea pigs <laughs> they are my tiny um so the kind of deal was with my um you know i think i'd been full of confidence with my neonatologist i've done this before and i know what i'm doing and he sort of said if you go home you go home and you recreate skaboo you feed these babies skin to skin and you put them back down there's no kind of taking them out there's no big interaction with them they need to grow um and so it was a bit of a long, slow process. And over the next couple of months, both had to be readmitted for surgeries. They both needed to have bilateral inguinal hernia repairs, uh, which is really common in preemie boys. It's basically where the muscles at the bottom of the um, abdomen are not quite strong enough to kind of keep in all the um, uh, intestines and they herniate down into the scrotum cavity. So there's a bit of a um, chance, obviously, that they can um, uh, get trapped. Um, so they both needed, uh, we went through that with one of them and then two weeks later we had to go through the oh same surgery with the other. Um, so we ended up being between three different NICU units on our journey with the boys. Um, so we had a good, I had a pretty good crash course for um, what I had no idea was going to become my career later I'm basically on. just sitting here with my mouth open. <laughs> you've, I'm, I have talked at you. I don't think you've asked a single question. <laughs> I've just talked at you for this whole it process. It's just astounding. I just... No, I listen to your podcast and I think of so many people and I think I just, I... The stories that women have, and I think that's one of the things that I count myself so lucky to do what we do today, is the women that we get to meet and the stories that we get to hear are incredible. And some of them are incredible um, through an enormous amount of devastation and, and heartache. Um, and I count myself, you know, truly very lucky. And it is luck. There is no reason 
why one baby just makes it and one baby doesn't and I can't wouldn't ever ever deign to reason why but um I do appreciate how lucky I am and um and I got you know that they did manage to overcome quite so many things mm-hmm. um and so many challenges and having been told on so many occasions that they weren't going to make it and Can you tell us about the boys yeah. now so now they're doing pretty well I have to say it was a fairly long journey out of prematurity um I think longer than I had anticipated mm-hmm. I think that um we maybe take for granted that you know babies actually when they are born um past 24 weeks and certainly once past the 32 week mark which is a big kind of tick in the box yeah. milestone for all major organ development um that actually premature birth still can have some fairly long ongoing consequences and even though mine were born not too early on admittedly they were quite poorly when i was pregnant we struggle we have one twin who has got um, a chronic lung condition that's kind of not really identifiable to any particular thing other than his prematurity um and we're really only just coming out of the back of that now at five and a half years later so he struggled with apnea um still we ended up having to take him to great ormond street for some more surgery to have his tonsils and adenoids out because he was um struggling with breathing at night Mm -hmm. um he'd, he'd have periods of apnea um and you know, and we've gone through in the last year, we went through a fairly big um, kind of chest physio and um, steroid routine with him to try and boost his lungs because he really was suffering a lot with chronic coughing um, and um, getting it's Harrison's sulcus, the kind of line, it's starting to change basically the shape of his um, ribs and the cartilage around his upper diaphragm area from is, the chronic coughing. Is it getting better? It is now getting better. Good. I really don't want to throw anything else at it this year i think the fact that <laughs> everyone is socially distancing anyway is a very good thing but i do think we're finally coming out of it and other than the fact that he's missing the tops of three toes um they are just an absolute joy to parent and behold every day i feel like i live in this amazing discovery channel kind of program watching the two of them interact is just beyond heartwarming and um they have a relationship that is so different to the other two. And as they've grown up, you know, some of the little twinship things have just been Twinship, hilarious. I love that. Yeah. Oh, that's so cute. Yeah, it has. Been, it, it, it's been a real pleasure and a real honor. And, um, and, and they are the reason that I do what I do today. And I could not imagine doing anything else. So what do you do today, Lala? Because you've been talking about keep keep saying it. Else. <laughs> no, so today I, um, I think it's probably quicker to summarize what I don't do today, but basically <laughs> I'm a, I would say a pregnancy birth and parenting kind of support specialist, particularly for people who are having a complicated um, journey to or through pregnancy, birth and parenting. So I am a doula, I'm an antenatal teacher and a hypnobirthing teacher, I'm a breastfeeding counselor, and um, I I'm very, very passionate about women having individualized um, support, both emotionally and physically um, and medically, obviously, um, from pregnancy all the way through to early parenthood. Um, And I absolutely love what I do. Um, I have another mum, in fact, that you must have on your wonderful podcast, um, who I was 
I was best to be beside her. She's the smallest baby that I've been beside as doula when she was born. She was 460 grams oh my goodness. at um, 24 plus two. And she came out with a great yelp. Um, and I remember coming back and saying to Arto, what was your excuse in 33 <laughs> weeks? This little girl is 460 grams. Where was your Yelp? Um, and uh, and her mum was amazing. And it was a V-back as well. She was absolutely amazing. Um, so, yes. So that is what I do. Um, and I host free support mornings. I also help run a couple of our big voluntary organizations out here. So Small and Mighty Babies is our UAE-founded support group for babies born poorly or prematurely. And we also have a love through loss faction. So we support families who experience the devastation of pregnancy or infant loss or neonatal loss. And I am a voluntary bereavement doula, meaning that um, families or hospitals or obstetricians can call on me to come and help support a family through the birth of their baby at any point in pregnancy. Um, if the baby has passed away and I can help them create a love through loss memory box that we supply. Um, and that goes for anyone at any stage in pregnancy. Um, I am also heavily involved in running um, kind of family support side of things as well at Twins Plus Arabia. I absolutely love all the multiple mamas that I get to be in touch with and it is just um, an amazing community to be, to be part of that I count myself very, very lucky to be part of. I call it Twindom. <laughs> but again, um, are all the lovely triplet and quad mums that we have as well. And um, so I think I am one jolly lucky person. I love what I do. <laughs> I could not imagine doing anything different. You're one jolly incredible person. No, I think I sleep about an hour a night, <laughs> if that. Snuggled up to two very cuddly boys who at five and a half still co-sleep every single night. <laughs> um, and I embrace and snuggle into every single bit of it. Um, but I think I, I would definitely acknowledge that I spin a lot of plates. Um, I think I live in fear of them all coming crashing down at any point. Um, and uh, Zoe will attest to the fact that as she came through the door tonight, <laughs> I was simultaneously recording a virtual nativity play of everyone reciting their lines. Um, their verse for the virtual choir, for junior choir for church, and creating a Poseidon costume for tomorrow's day at school. Which you've still got to finish. Which I still have to finish. <laughs> yeah. So, but... You know, I again, as I say, it's not lost on me how lucky I am. Do you know am. what? It was beautiful, though. It was lovely. <laughs> it was happy. It was noisy. Um, it's chaotic. You've got the most incredible Christmas tree and festive house as well. So it was just, it was lovely. <laughs> we do go big at Christmas time. <laughs> <laughs> so on that note, as you have to create a trident. Um, yeah. Thank you so, so much for speaking with me. Um, speaking at you, I think, is probably... Well, you said it. Um, <laughs> uh, so I finished the podcast with um, three questions. Yeah. Um, I gave you very little warning on these, so my apologies. No um, so if you could have coffee or wine or gin, um, sit down with a drink with any other female, who would that be? Well, given I've been so greedy about talking at you, I'm going to be greedy on this I recently, as part of my own self-care, I see a therapist once a week um, online in this wonderful world of Zoom that COVID's brought us. Does she get to say anything? Oh. Sorry, does she get to say anything when we talk? <laughs> <laughs> if she's lucky. <laughs> um, and as part of it, uh, you have to think of three people who um, are in any situation that when you're doing EMDR, 
who one is your wise person, um, one is your protector, um, and one is kind of that kind of compassionate person. And um, one of my wise people is um, Michelle Obama. She's right there being able nice. to negotiate for me. Absolutely. Yes. She's brilliant. When I can't say, articulate what I need to say, she does it for me. Awesome. And then my, <laughs> my, I love that. And then my compassionate person is Penny Simpkin. She's just there giving me a good old hug. And love. For anybody who's not involved in the birth world, Penny Simpkin is a wonderful birth worker who's US-based um, and, um, and very well known. She has an excellent book called The Birth Partner and she does some lovely videos. And I feel like everybody would be a lot happier if they just had Penny knitting in the corner of the room. <laughs> she probably doesn't knit. I'm sorry, Penny, if you don't knit. But, um, so she definitely does like, in your head. I would like to sit down with um, these two um, because they were people that instinctively came to me as wonderful um, women within the fields of what they do. Uh, so I'd love to actually get to meet them in person. I love it. Do you talk to them? Uh, yeah, and we talk to each other. They, yeah, they help me. Um, I know that I can get a good hug from Penny if I need it. I know that Michelle will say things 10 times better than I ever can in the situation that we're in. And then my third person, the protector, is um, the bear from um, uh, the... Um, Philip Pullman um, BBC adaptation so I don't want to sit down with him he's just my protector he's absolutely fine I feel like that's going to be harder but I'm happy Penny and um, Michelle if you're listening then I would love to sit down with you anytime I love this <laughs> you're so funny um, any great mum hacks that you can share uh, I'm not so sure about mum hacks, given that I was simultaneously trying to do three things as you walk through the door but you did them yeah I think I would, yeah, so probably preparing ahead, <laughs> having a better, I have an entire wall of my kitchen, which is blackboard paint to try and make sure that I stay on top of what I'm meant to do. And it's a massive organizer and I've still dropped the ball. I think a big thing I would say is be compassionate with yourself. Um, one of the things that drives my husband and I have a big clash in this is that when we're trying to get out of the door, I appreciate that we are never going to get out of the door on time with our four children. And I'm okay with that. I let that go and think, you know what? This 10 minutes is not going to matter in the grand scheme of things. We will get Whereas, there. Exactly. And anyone who knows us and loves us has dealt with that. <laughs> they know that the Langtree Whites will get there at some point. We show up. We always show up. Definitely. But we People, just... Do they tell you an hour earlier if that has started happening? Not yet. yet. But I think that they probably should come. start to. <laughs> exactly. Now anyone who knows us, that's what you should be doing. Um, but for my husband and my husband's family, being on time is absolutely they're fastidious about it so for him it stresses him so much so I think things like that appreciate that you're doing your best and otherwise we all just start the day hyper stressed mm. about getting somewhere mm -hmm. on time um, and I would rather that we we didn't so I think if you know it's not a life hack but just be kind to yourselves and realize that we're all doing the best we can and your best is blowing amazing that's awesome that's top advice and since becoming a mum is there anything you found yourself saying that your mother used to say to you well I'm not sure that it really applies to parenting so much but and my husband certainly probably doesn't enjoy me repeating at him but my mother always said buy nice or buy twice um so I'm always saying you know like invest in the nice stuff and you won't have to replace it etc so I think probably my poor husband would perhaps dispute it a little bit on occasions but yes that's what I hear myself saying is well buy nice do you know what? it makes me think of my mother so much because uh, the carpet in her house has been there since before I was born 
There you go. She nice. <laughs> and we did. I did talk to her about it last year, but maybe maybe it's time to change. No, 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 no. It was very expensive. Um, it's got years in it yet. Absolutely. Red bear. Yeah. Mother, if you're listening, change the carpet. <laughs> There you go. Absolutely. But, you know, I think, I think, you know, especially now in this age where we're all trying to buy a little bit more consciously. Absolutely. So yes. Buy no, better and buy less. Yeah. Or don't that buy at all. Or don't buy at all. Absolutely. Um, I think probably the easiest thing to do is put all your um, connections and contacts and everything in the show notes because there's many. There, um, there are a few <laughs> different factions depending on what you might want to contact me for indeed um, so I shall do that so if anyone would like to contact you all the details will be in the show notes so thank you again so much for fitting me in today because you've been here there and everywhere doing eight million things and you told me about your day tomorrow which is no no less um busy so um time to go to bed well it's always an absolute pleasure to um get to get to see and get to sit with you and one of the things I forgot to mention that I recently got made this summer was a doula mentor and <laughs> Zoe happens to be just completely <laughs> ironic given that she is a midwife and I draw on her for huge amounts of experience and support and a lovely friend as well but is one of my mentees there as well go. so um, it's yeah. one lovely happy circle it is indeed <laughs> it is indeed um so I think I um, benefit just as much if not 10 times more from that relationship oh, thank you good night night absolutely go to sleep thank you <laughs> i will do i really want to thank lala for speaking with me today i literally walked into her doing 100 things at once with four kids flying around the house in the most adorable matching christmas pajamas and she still met me with the most beautiful smile taking it all in her stride She's an extraordinary lady who gives so much to the birthing community in the UAE. I'm totally stealing her mantra, life is forged in the connections, not the comparisons, and think you should all too. Join me next week for the last episode of Motherhood Exposed before we take a little break for the festive season, ready to be back in the new year. Take care and have a super week.